Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. For our seventh season, we're speaking to clean tech leaders about the process of investing in a cleaner planet. From inspiring stories and words of wisdom to financial forecast and investment insights, you can learn all about the people and companies who are driving these investments and propelling us towards a cleaner, greener tomorrow. I'm your regular host, Jenny Gladman, but this season there's a twist. I'll be taking a few months off to have my second baby. So I'm handing the reins of our podcast over to a series of fellow Brightsmithers who will be season seven's super co-hosts. So without further hesitation, Hello, everyone. I am one of your hosts for Conversations in Clean Tech. Today, I am joined with Travis Caddy, who is the Product Development Manager at Evident. He has just returned from COP28, and today we'll be reflecting on his experience at COP28 and delve into all things carbon removal. So hi, Travis. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Alexa. It's great to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Cool. Well, just to kick things off, Travis, would you be able just to give us a little bit of context of your journey, how you ended up in the sustainability space and specifically at Evident? Sure. Yeah. So um, first things first, I've, I've always been very passionate about sustainability. Uh, I grew up next to the Peak District in, in Sheffield. So I, I grew up enjoying sort of a natural affiliation towards the rest of nature. And also, funnily enough, my grandparents co-founded uh, one of the Global North's first uh, first ever eco villages in Scotland uh, called Fintorn, which my dad spent most of his child uh, growing up in. And so visiting there as a child, um, I loved seeing a sort of alternative way of living to the mainstream that I was brought up in that was all about sort of living in harmony with nature and had a real sense of community. And so I always thought it was my destiny, I think, to pursue a career in, in sustainability and somewhat in the in the climate world. And that's what ultimately motivated my decision to read geography at University College London, um, where I got to deepen my knowledge around uh, sustainability and climate change before finding this opportunity at Evident uh, in early 2020. Uh, this is when Evident was a very small team. We were only just six. And for your audience members who maybe haven't heard of Evidence work and the work that we do, we design uh, market-based mechanisms and build registries to certify the clean economy. Our origins go back to 2014 when we co-founded IREC, the International Renewable Energy Certificate, which acts as a, a guarantee of origin for renewable energy scope two carbon emission claims. And it's now seen as the global standard for renewable energy certification outside the EU and the US, where we've implemented IREC across 60 markets, um, predominantly in the global south. And when I joined in 2020, our only product was IREC. Um, but because of its growth, coupled with our CEO's vision to go beyond certifying just the electron. We started identifying opportunities to build markets for other emergent asset classes. So for the last almost four years now, I've been able to oversee the development of new registries for low methane natural gas, sustainable aviation fuel, durable carbon removal. So it's it's been a really exciting time of growth uh, with no signs of, of slowing down for 2024. We're nearing almost the 100 employee uh, mark now. So um, yeah, it feels really special to be a part of and and marry um, sort of that that passion for, for climate and sustainability with, with my career. That's amazing. I always love hearing about 
how each person's individual journey led them to where they are today. And especially with all of the work that you've been doing in Evidence so far and Evident as a company, it sounds like you guys have grown so much and been able to achieve so much. And I'm sure that that's one of the reasons why you attended COP28. So COP28 marks the 28th year of the UN Climate Change Conference held in the UAE. Would you be able just to shed a little bit of light of why you attended COP? Sure, yeah. I think I can answer that um, in two ways. Uh, one professionally and then one personally. So Evident had a lot of our partners and, and clients on the ground. Um, so it was a really convenient place to book in-person meetings. And COPs in general really are just a, a melting pot of all the people that you could possibly want to, to meet within the clean economy and, and climate space. As you know, I'm also a massive carbon removal advocate. So I was invited to speak on a couple of panels and talk about the role of, of the UAE in, in carbon removal, but also who should pay for carbon removal, really interesting topic areas. And also I find it's really important to have these conversations at COP because carbon removal, it's still considered a relatively niche topic within the UNFCCC process. I think traditionally there's been a much greater focus on adaptation and mitigation. So it was important for the carbon removal community to, to be present and make ourselves loud and clear uh, that we need carbon removal recognized as a third pillar of climate action and sustainable development beyond just traditional adaptation and mitigation. You know, we don't get to net zero without carbon removal. And we can't also just rely on conventional land-based short-term uh, forms of carbon removal. We need to enable and scale more novel technologies like, like direct air capture with geological storage, which is still new, relatively new to a lot of folks as well, particularly um, even climate veterans that have focused more on pure decarbonization through renewable energy and hydrogen and other initiative. And because of that nascency, there's still a lot of skepticism, I think, around these technologies and the role that they can play and whether they would just be used as a substitute to keep keep polluting. So it's really important that, you know, advocates such as myself and others attend these conferences to raise awareness and, and help educate. And then I think personally, what I love about the, the COP process is that it's just so diverse and, and global in terms of its delegation. So, you know, you're meeting people from all around the world, including those from indigenous communities who are often on the front line of climate change. And you get to hear about their experiences, their stories, what brought them, you know, potentially halfway around the world to attend COP. And that's really nice because, you know, I think we've come a long way in, in the, the climate movement to most people recognizing that climate change is an ex existential threat, which is a really important step. But a lot of people still view it as a future existential threat. But but climate change, as we already know, it's, it's already the reality and it's already on the doorsteps of millions of people around the world. And so it's important to recognize that that climate change is global, but its effects are always experienced locally. So to attend COP and have the opportunity to hear about the extreme droughts, the extreme flooding um, that's going on around the world really equips you with the vital messaging, I think, to return home and share these stories with friends and families that climate change is, is real, it's extreme, it's happening now. That being said, you know, I don't think we should be motivated by by, here, uh, by fear, we should be motivated by by hope. And um, that's certainly what I've, I've come away from, from the experience is that by 
by rallying a community that, that is so passionate about this in places like, like Dubai, you do return feeling energized. Although it was exhausting, you do feel, <laughs> I can return imagine. feeling energized and, and yeah, ready for, for 2024 and um, furthering, the, furthering the agenda. Good. Amazing. Well, I love what you said about being motivated by hope rather than fear. And at the same time, it's so incredibly important to hear about the firsthand experiences of people who are feeling the effects of climate change as well, and that there is that representation there. I know that you mentioned that you made a couple panel contributions as well, which is great to hear. The choice of having COP in the UAE obviously sparked some controversy due to the region's kind of significant involvement in the oil and gas industry. I know that this is one of the panels that you were involved in, and so I'd be keen to hear your insight on, on this matter. Of course, yeah. So I, I had the pleasure of uh, moderating a panel on the role that the UAE can play in scaling durable forms of carbon removal, where we had representatives from a couple of project developers working or thinking about working in the region. So we had 1.5, which is a direct air capture company, and 4401, a mineralization company who are injecting carbon uh, into the ground, as well as buyers from uh, Mitsubishi. And we had an expert from an expert on Article 6, where we've really got right to the crux of this issue about the role of, of oil and gas involvement in climate change, specifically within the, the carbon removal context. And I think everyone on the panel was largely in agreement in recognizing that oil and gas do indeed have a role to play, but you know, it, it's not, it shouldn't just be used as a form of technology to continue on polluting and, and continuing with um, business as usual. The important role that oil and gas do play, I think, is that they have the capital and the necessary experience in building these sort of large scale infrastructure projects um, that we need in order to scale them. And interestingly, you know, the UAE and the Middle East, although it really didn't get spoken about too much apart from this panel was that they have a lot of potential for these technologies, particularly direct air capture and storage. So if we think about, you know, what you need to deploy direct air capture, you, you really need four things. One is access to clean, affordable energy. DAC is super energy intensive. And if you're not powered by clean energy, you're potentially going to emit more than you store. Um, and the Gulf region, uh, has abundant solar energy potential all year round, which I was on the receiving end at COP, uh, sweating in my in my suit. They also have very good geology. Um, you know, for direct air capture, you need to be able to lock away these captured um, emissions from the atmosphere safely, securely, and, and durably for tens of thousands of years. And in the Middle East, you have a lot of access to depleted oil and gas reservoirs, as well as um, a particular type of ultramafic rock known as peridotite which is what 4401 are using uh, to inject their um, captured carbon. And then you also need good human capital. Um, and given the vast amount of expertise um, within the energy sector there, it makes sense to, to again, deploy in, in the Gulf region. And then finally, you need infrastructure. You need the pipelines to transport the carbon and pump it back underground. And a lot of this uh, existing infrastructure in the region can be retailed to sort of reverse the flow of, of carbon going into the into the subsurface. So yes, uh, Dubai, of course, was was always going to be deemed as a sort of controversial place to to host the COP. But that proximity to 
actors in, in oil and gas um, at least allowed us to have a meaningful conversation around um, the role that they can play in, in certain sectors. And I think durable carbon removal is, is going to be an important example of that. Absolutely. And it's so interesting to hear about also the different opinions that people have within this space and also certain key roles that not only countries, but industries and companies have within the energy transition. This is something that you touched on earlier on in the conversation, but you mentioned who should be paying for carbon removals. Can you say anything else about that? I'm not sure if you have a specific answer or a couple, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Sure, yeah. So I think one of the panels that I was um, had the pleasure of speaking on was with Robert Hogland, who is seen as a sort of influencer within the, the carbon removal community. And he was able to provide a, um, uh, an update on the emissions gap report that he collaborated with on, uh, with Carbon Gap on last year. And he found that a lot of companies today actually can afford to invest in, in carbon removal. You know, a lot of the rhetoric today is that it's very expensive. And yes, it is when speaking in the context of sort of traditional um, carbon offsets and carbon credits. But if you look at a lot of these companies, particularly tech companies, they have a very high profit to um, carbon emitted ratio. And he has done an exercise in terms of um, establishing the link between profit and your carbon emissions and has found that a lot of these tech companies absolutely do have the capacity to invest in, in uh, these technologies today. So I think Tech companies have an important role in terms of their budget um, to contribute to financing carbon removal. But with that being said, you know, hard to abate sectors um, are going to need to invest and play a role as well. Oil and gas companies as well, um, I think, can, can be an important actor in this in terms of providing not necessarily the finance into carbon removal credits, but certainly these infrastructure scale projects. And we're already seeing that uh, through the likes of Oxy, um, Oxy Low Carbon Ventures, through the acquisition of Carbon Engineering, a direct air capture company through 1.5. Ultimately, it's going to have to be governments, I think, that, that pay for this stuff. But in the early days, we really need to rely on voluntary actors who do have the budgets to invest in carbon removal. And we've already seen that through the likes of um, Frontier and, and Silicon Valley tech companies putting up the money. But yeah, we, we need we need more financing for carbon removal. What we have today is is still very limited. You know, 5 million tonnes have been bought on a forward basis, but only around 3% of that has been delivered. So this is um, this is barely even a market. It's a, it's a future market, um, but it needs investment now to ensure that we have the, the scale that we need for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting to be able to already have a vision into what it should be and the importance around getting everyone to collaborate to ensure that it is that in the future as well. And even just encouraging people to to see it as an actual market rather than something that distance will you know uncover at some point. Out of everything that you took away from COP, and I know that it will be a lot, just also going back to one of the things that you said, what were some of those, I guess, symbols of hope that maybe you weren't expecting that sounded really positive? What was that for you? Yeah, I think broadly speaking, the final text that was released, I know a lot of people are disappointed about this in terms of not getting phase out language into the text of the, the COP agreement, um, but transitioning away 
from fossil fuels was introduced um, for the first time. And to get sort of, you know, however many countries are involved in the COP process um, to sign up to language around transitioning away from fossil fuels, I think, I think was was a special time for us to somewhat celebrate. But I'm also very conscious that we we can't celebrate pledges. We need to celebrate actions when we can account for them and when we can measure them. So how hopeful I am on, on certain countries, I think moving away from, from fossil fuels remains to be seen. But I think broadly, you know, there was a lot of other pledges made to contributing to loss and damage funds, massive upscaling of renewable energy, methane abatement. These are all really positive signs. Within the durable carbon removal space as well, we also had the, the carbon removal challenge announced, no, the carbon management challenge, whereby 20 countries led by the US have signed up to storing 1 billion tons of, of carbon, either from point source or direct air capture by 2030, which is a huge demand signal um, to companies working in the space that governments are in support of this, which is, uh, which is super exciting. Yeah, that's massive. All hands on deck. And on the other side of things, I guess, what did you see as some of the limitations of COP that maybe you were expecting a little bit more from certain things or things that you absolutely would want to see in the next COP? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the limitations of COP sort of speak for itself, right? You know, this is the 28th edition that we've just taken part in and global emissions have continued to rise year on year. I think we've had two global pauses, one in 2008 because of the financial crisis and also during COVID. And so the success of, of these COP processes, I think, really get, get brought into question, you know, what is their role? And that, I think, is, is just down to the nature of, of diplomacy and, and finding a way for every country in the world to transition away from fossil fuels in a, in a just, orderly uh, manner. And I think the challenge that we have and limitations of COP is that, you know, certain countries are more prepared and more ready to transition away than, than others. And of course, that's a really sort of fine, fine line to tread in terms of, you know, we need to act urgently, but also, you know, countries like the US, UK, EU, we're in a far better financial position, I think, to, to afford this energy transition and, and, and take action. Whereas other countries um, who are still developing, uh, who are predominantly in the global south, they may need a little bit more time. And that's where I think it's important for countries such as the UK, um, such as the US to, to step up at processes like COP and say that, that we are more willing to transition faster than, than, than other countries and, and just give those countries a little bit more time. And so do you think that certain countries have more of a responsibility to transition quicker than others? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I look at the UK's contributions to the climate change and global emissions today, it, it's very small. And a lot of people would, would argue that it's, it's negligible. And I hear all the time, I don't know about you, but people saying, oh, you know, we should be worried about China and India and the rate that they are industrializing. But I think when we talk about responsibility, 
responsibility, it's really important to look back over time as to when this all started. You know, when did the Anthropocene begin? Well, it started in the UK. You know, we were the birthplace for the Industrial Revolution. And so when you look through a much more holistic and historical lens, you find that the UK has been the fifth largest emitter of, of emissions, greenhouse gas emissions since that period. And so it's important that, that we fund loss and damage where we can and also decarbonize at a much faster rate uh, than others. Now, I know that would maybe annoy or frustrate um, some audience members because, you know, ultimately that, that burden falls on us as the taxpayer. But for a lot of these countries <clears throat> that are now being asked to contribute to climate finance, you know, it, it's a bit like turning up to a five course meal and only ordering sort of one espresso towards the end um, and being asked to split the bill. You know, I th and I think that's a nice way to, to put it in that, you know, we've had the, the pleasure of industrializing um, for over two centuries now, which has given us, you know, a, a beautiful country to live in. I'm very fortunate to have lived here. You know, we have free healthcare and a lot of other benefits. And because of that privilege and what we've inherited, I think it's only right and fair that we contribute to to the finance, climate finance that, that is necessary more than more than other countries. Absolutely. I think that's so interesting and I, I definitely agree as well. Lastly, uh, a little question to end on, but will you be attending COP next year? I will indeed, yes. Uh, I mean, that's the hope. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Have you been to, to Baku, Azerbaijan? Uh, no, <laughs> no, nor have I. So, so it'll be, um, it'll be my first time very much looking forward to it. It'll be interesting to see how many of the pledges that were made at this year's COP, um, actually materialize in, in that time, but yeah, very much looking forward to, to attending and, um, yeah, seeing what's in store. Good. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your personal experience and also your opinions on certain topics that were brought up from COP. It's so interesting to hear your personal story as well, and also the importance of carbon removals in the energy transition and getting everyone involved. But we really appreciate it. Thanks for joining our conversations in Clean Tech, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for having me. Cheers.